Hi, and welcome back to another edition of Occupy America Social Network. And this is episode 42. This is Occupy Independence Forever, which is a quote from the second United States president, John Adams. Uh, that was his quote. This is our Independence Day. And uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm really delighted to be talking to somebody who can give us a, a more broad picture. Uh, Susie, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thanks so much, Terry, for having me on the show. Um, my name is Susie Dawson. I'm a citizen journalist um, from Occupy Auckland media team in New Zealand. Um, I'm also a blogger on a variety of independent platforms um, and an old friend of you through the wonders of the Internet. Great talking to you. I uh, want to go ahead. We've got like a billion things to try to cover in not much time. You've got three of the stories that I think people will get a kick out of, our, our listeners. Uh, and, and we'll start off with probably the most important one. Um, help us out here with Mr. Snowden. Uh, oh, there's been so much happening with Snowden recently. I'm looking forward to talking about that. Also, I just want to quickly say Happy Independence Day because I know it was, it was 4th of July for you and also your 4th of July show. Um, I saw an awesome tweet go out actually yesterday, a photo, um, a Stand with Snowden pic um, featuring Jesslyn Raddick, um, Edward Snowden's lawyer, William Binney, Thomas Drake, Laura Poitras, and Diani Burrito, and James Bamford. And that really inspired me too because recently, I'm in Berlin right now, and recently I actually got to meet some of those people on June 7th at the QV Democracy event here. I actually got to meet Jess Raddick, um, Sarah Harrison, Thomas Drake, and Diani Burrito, which was an amazing experience because these are people I've written about and, and kept a close eye on for years, but to actually get to see them in the flesh and just get some really good vibes from them was amazing. I, I've never actually had the chance to talk to him, and I have reservations, and we've talked about this before. Um, there's basically a quote from Mr. Snowden, and, and it goes to the heart of why I'm having troubles finding a way to be able to use his information. Um, and I think you've got that quote. Do you have that? I can't see it while I'm talking. It was Bloomberg, time. right? Uh, Bloomberg, yes, and and it was a Snowden quote, hopefully, or right. they may have misquoted so I him. I, I don't have the quote in front of me, unfortunately, but I think what you're talking about is where um, he was saying that the journalists who he passed the information to actually run the information past um, certain government representatives before they release it. Uh, yes, yeah, I, I, basically to paraphrase, uh, they want to only relates it to responsible journalists, which I'm not sure you and I would be classified as responsible journalists. Uh, and second point was in coordination with government stakeholders. And again, if the government stakeholders were acting responsibly, we wouldn't be needing whistleblowers. So help us out here. How do we use the information? <laughs> What's the I, middle I totally line agree with you. I, I totally agree with you. However, on, on the other side, I think that Snowden is kind of damned if he does and damned if he doesn't because there's really two positions that are diametrically opposed. The one position is that he's trying to do the responsible thing. He's trying to make sure that, you know, no one's life and limb is endangered by the release of this information. He wants to show that there's some process to guarantee that. Um, but then the other option would be, you know, dump it all with to WikiLeaks and, and have it... Um, 
have it all come out at once. And I think the way he's doing it now has the positive side of like um, appealing to uh, more of the mainstream as, uh, as being a responsible tactic in releasing the information. Um, but then there's the downside, which is the critics who say, oh, it's not coming out fast enough. And, and as you say, you know, are these government representatives actually responsible enough to be making decisions about or having input about whether or not the information should be released? But then if he had just dumped it all through WikiLeaks, we would, it would flip to the other side, right? People would say, oh, that's irresponsible to just give it all to WikiLeaks. It's irresponsible to dump it all out in one go. But then some people would say, no, it's really great because now it's all in the public domain. So I kind of feel like no matter what way he had gone about releasing this information, there's going to be some sector of people that is upset with him. I, I totally agree. And you can also, what we're going to address here shortly is some of the the psychological warfare being used to discredit him, uh, which is pretty obvious. But there is one other thing on the slow motion release uh, that I wanted to touch on, which was a former show guest, Stan Cohen, uh, kept requesting information because he had he had uh, uh, defendants who needed that information if there was anything on it. Uh, and it's a little late for Mr. Cohen to work on it because right now he is also a political prisoner. Um, where's the balance on this, too? Uh, we're about five minutes out of the first 20 minutes. And uh, do you – where's the middle line there? Uh, can you touch on that? I think it was primarily a resource issue. I think that, um, I mean, First Look Media wasn't an established organization when, when Snowden – um, leaks the information to the journalists. They've had to build this media organization to get these releases out. And in doing so, that's allowed them to circumvent or to not have to be entirely dependent upon the mainstream outlets like the New York Times and the whoever else, who seem to be interested in some big stories at the beginning and, to be fair, have been more recently. But um, we're clearly not going to consistently report on every document that was released. So I think they did the right thing in building a new media organization from the ground up. I think a lot more reporting has been, um, come out as a result, and I think that puts a pr uh, pressure on the mainstream media internationally to do more reporting on the releases. Um, but I don't think they ever had the resources at the outset to be able to just pull information out of, you know, for specific individuals or specific purposes. Um, at the end of the day, he handed over documents, not necessarily a searchable database. So, um, and I think that is something actually that's beginning to happen now is that what was PDF images and, and image files um, eventually will be searchable text and then perhaps people will be able to sort through that information a lot more easily. But unfortunately, I don't think it was viable for, for that to happen from the outset. Well, the, we've got about 13 minutes left in this first segment. Uh, and, and, and if you would, please talk about the article that you did that's showing the obvious uh, mainstream media, which is actually no longer the mainstream media because they've lied so much people don't trust them anymore. Uh, oh, right. We're now yeah, the mainstream media. Uh, but, but obviously there's some discrediting uh, going on, and, and please go into that. That was the dinosaur article that you wrote, and we'll have yeah. a link on it. 
Yeah, so um, on contraspin.co.nz, which is C-O-N-T-R-A-S-P-I-N, I published an article called Debunking the Dinosaurs, Dismantling Snowden's Detractors, where I deconstructed a 15-point Twitter diatribe by Boston Globe and London Observer columnist Michael Cohen, um, who had pretty much ripped into Snowden and into Glenn Greenwald for a, a number of, of reasons. Um, and I break these down in, in that article, and um, particularly of note, I discussed that what ultimately convinces me of Snowden's authenticity isn't his supporters. It's not Glenn Greenwald or Jess Raddick or everyone else. I mean, they're great, but that's not what really proves to me his efficacy. Um, what does prove it to me is the way that the establishment is attacking him and the methods that they're using because they are using the exact same deny, degrade, distract, disrupt, destroy playbook against him that his own revelations show are being used against every other activist. And everything that I've experienced and, and seen happen to others in the last nearly four years is precisely what is being done to Snowden. It's the same sock puppet accounts with the, the uniform um, negative narratives about him, you know, the disparagements that they make. And then when you start to look at, at the cast of political characters that have been trotted out to discredit him, it's Cheney, it's Clinton, it's Hayden, it's current and past directors of this, that and the other government agency. And not only that, but these are the people who are behind the disinformation about the Iraq war. I mean, these are literally the disinformation dinosaurs. And the fact that the, the full weight of their departments is being used to discredit him and that the methodology is exactly the same as the discrediting of the Occupy movement or, you know, pick any other movement, they've had the same thing happen to them, that is really telling. Like, to me, it is so much more credible that that they're using that playbook against him the same they do against us than the obscure theory that's out there that somehow this Snowden is a CIA disinfo op and somehow President Putin is involved or complicit in it with the Americans. I mean, to me that just makes no sense. Like, there's been a very genuine attempt to starve out Russia economically through sanctions. Like, there's no way to me that 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 the assaults on the Russian economy are part of like some grand scheme to pretend that they're they're at war with each other when they're actually not. Um, I mean, those sanctions were used against Iraq and and other countries, you know, bef long before they were used on Russia. And it's really clear to me also that Russia and China are seen by the U.S. as the greatest so-called threats to them in the cyber war. And that's what the USA policy is really all about. So I don't believe for one second that Russia and the USA are in bed together, you know, to try and put Snowden out there as a disinfo op. Like, that just, it, it makes no sense when you look at the facts. Uh, there, there's a historian uh, by the name of, uh, he wrote, a book called Best Anime Money Can Buy, and we'll have a link to it and, a, and an online version that they can write. And it comes down to Wall Street is, is basically backing both sides. They make money off of both sides. Uh, it's the economic view of history. And we could do an entire show and should do an entire show on it later. Uh, we haven't got time in the last six minutes we've got in this uh, section. Uh, but... Could, could you touch on, uh, you've actually, because of going to Germany, you have a feel for them personally. Um, and, and maybe you can help us try to sort out how do we, at the same time we don't trust them completely, 
but we should be able to work with the information. Is it verifiable? Is it a verifiable fact? Um, how do we do this? What's the middle ground? I think it's quite hard um, when you're detached, you know, whether it's geographically detached like I was in New Zealand or as the average viewer is, but when they watch the videos or they read the articles, you know, these are the, it's the same methods of transmitting information that the mainstream media use, right? Video journalism and print journalism. So it's right. quite easy to, to view it with the same critical eye that you would with the mainstream media who clearly don't tell the truth all the time, if any of the time, to be frank. Um, but actually having met them in person, which I never expected to happen, there was no coordination surrounding that whatsoever, it just happened to occur for me. Um, meeting them in person, I realized that they really are just ordinary people, and that I just got amazing vibes from all of them, and they talked to me very personally, especially Thomas Drake, about his story and, and the things that happened to him, and every single thing that he was telling me was matching up with everything I'd experienced in Auckland. Again, it's the same methodology, it's the same tactics, the same playbook that have been used against these people as have been used against all of us grassroots activists. Um, so yet again, that really hammered home for me that these are real people who are speaking out about their experiences. It's not scripted at all. And I mean, Ellsberg, um, you and I had had some discussion I think from something Doug Valentine had written about Daniel Ellsberg, yes. where he suspected that um, Ellsberg might not have been, uh, you know, forthright about how the Pentagon Papers came to be released and whatnot. And and I I saw and and stood right next to Ellsberg on several occasions on that day, and I was really struck by the fact that. This is a guy in his 80s, you know, this is not a guy who's pre-retirement, who's trotting out around the globe, like, pushing a government line. This is someone who's in his 80s and speaking out, I mean, his entire speech was anti-nuclear. And to me, like, a government shill is not in their middle 80s giving speeches <laughs> against nuclear weapons. <laughs> That's just not what happens. Like, if he was a, truly a government show pushing a government agenda, in his 80s, he would be retired in his mansion on Cape Cod, you know, with his feet up on a lounge chair. Like, there's no way that he would be out traveling and, and, and giving really important political speeches that are directly contravene America, you know, Americans' nuclear interests, right? Like, he's literally right. talking about the inherent insanity of nuclear nuclear warfare, no matter which country it is that's perpetrating it. And anti-nuclear issues are really, really core, especially in New Zealand, right? Like, we rejected the ANZUS Treaty in the 80s because we wanted to create a nuclear-free zone. And um, I know firsthand how contentious that kind of activism has been and how much heat was on those anti-nuclear activists. So the fact that Daniel Ellsberg has the wherewithal to be talking about issues that contentious at, at his advanced age, I think also lends to uh, his personal efficacy. I find it very difficult to believe that the US government would send someone of his age around to do that. They, I don't see, that, see where they stand to gain from it. That being said, Doug had raised a specific historic point, and I think when you checked into it, there was there was a good point that he was raising, or, or, at least that's my understanding. 
Um, right. What he was saying is that Daniel Ellsberg was a CIA agent and not just um, a Department of Defense or Pentagon person. Um, and uh, and it was interesting because I instantly started to research that because I thought I'm sure that's not the case, you know. And so I started to look into it, and I actually found an Ellsberg interview where he talks about how the government, in the wake of his release of the Pentagon Papers, he he described it that the government tried to Valerie Plame. Valerie Plame, of course, being the CIA officer whose name was leaked, I think it was by Dick Cheney's office, wasn't it? Um, Back in the wake of the Iraq war, I think her husband had dissented in some way, and and to get back at him, they had decided to... They had leaked her name to reporters. Um, So the fact that he used... Those words that they tried to Valerie Plame him tells me that, yeah, he was a CIA officer, right? Because Valerie Plame was a CIA officer. So if they tried to Valerie Plame him, what they were trying to do is to use the fact that he was a CIA officer to discredit his release of the Pentagon Papers. So, so that, that again, is a tactic that the same same group of disinformation dinosaurs uses to discredit people. And then when you look at Snowden, I mean, Snowden also says he was in the CIA. So you have to ask yourself, does being a part of a military service then discredit you from ever speaking out or whistleblowing? I mean, clearly we're better off for for the Pentagon Papers and clearly we're better off for the Snowden releases. So I don't think them purely having been CIA officers is enough to discredit them. And the fact that their own government is willing to expose them for being covert operatives um, seems very convenient to the go- to the government. I, I think that's a good point. I don't think it's realistic to to expect that we're going to have perfect individuals. Um, we've we've all we've all got a mixture of good and bad, um, but at the same time, to use the information uh, is, is there? Do you see a, a transparency? Is there any way that we can let individuals, again, uh, independence forever, let independent people give them enough data that they can make their own judgment as to who's telling the truth and what the truth is? Um, What do you see there? Well, I think there's a lot more information in the public realm now than people realize. Um, There's a website called CryptoMe.org, C-R-Y-P-T, O-M-E dot org. Um, they keep a, stel- a tally of Snowden leaks documents, and they're right. up to over 5,000 now. There's 5,000 pages out there. Um, not 5,000 documents, but 5,000 pages. Now, I think that I found uh, about a half dozen websites that have been analyzing those documents outside of the mainstream media sphere, obviously that were also listed on CryptoMe. So I think there's a huge amount of information out there, but people only really see what comes from the big outlets. So if people really want to participate in analyzing that information, I would urge them to go and read the documents, read those 5,000 pages, because you can be guaranteed for every document, for, for every page that CNN turn into one story, there's probably 10 stories in that document, but without the eyes to look at it and the you know, hands to write about it, that information might never be found. So um, I think rather than criticize based on appearances, people need to actually jump in boots and all, see what's there and circulate that information. And then they're really in more of a position to criticize, I think, if they've done that. There's one other crucial point here that, again, I'm not a trusting soul, as you've picked up. I want to be able to verify. But at the same time, 
I 100% support that these are political prisoners uh, and they're doing more time being punished more than the war criminals who actually created the situation for profit that has led to these political prisoners having to take risks. Um, so it, so we, how do we support uh, freeing these guys, uh, amnesty or whatever? Um, it's just not fair for them to do more time than the people who are responsible, the, the Bushes, the uh, Obamas, the, uh, the the list goes on and on, um, and it's not my list. Uh, these are these are again independently verifiable that that there are legal experts saying you're breaking international law. Um, what's There's your thought really, there? There are, there are practical things that we can do, right? Like we can go in and donate to the legal defense funds. Like I know uh, Chelsea Manning was um, needing. A, a sum of money quite recently in order to continue his, his legal case or her legal case I should actually say um, and same with Snowden same with others they have legal costs we can help and chip in with that but I think that strategically what we need to do is to raise the political price on the government for persecuting whistleblowers and we need to raise the same kinds of movements um, in support of the whistleblowers that we see in working for other issues but that's said it is um i think jesselyn raddick said that it's a long game it's not a short game in terms of actually freeing them and i think she's right and when we look historically i mean look at mandela how many years he was in prison for you know i mean obviously he's a different case for a number of reasons but still like i don't think that chelsea manning's going to be released tomorrow or next week no matter what we do so but what we can do is raise the visibility for them and we can educate people and hopefully we can inspire a whole a whole torrent of of new whistleblowers, of new whistleblowers and and have more and more information coming out because I think the um, DOJ is a very slow moving beast. I mean, it's taken them years, you know, trying to investigate WikiLeaks, and then every time there's a new leak, they have to kind of start from scratch on that. So I do think it's possible for whistleblowers to move faster than the government if there's enough of them and if they bring out enough information. We're at uh, 21 minutes into the show. Uh, we really need to move, I guess, into the second segment because it was it was really good. I got a laugh out of it, and this stuff is so scary. Being able to laugh at it really helps. Um, the dick pics. Could you, could you tell us about the story that you did on the dick pics? Who didn't get a laugh out of the dick pics? I mean, I actually thought it was priceless. I've seen... I've seen so many interviews by Snowden over the years, and it was definitely a one-of-a-kind interview. <laughs> and I knew as soon as I saw it that it was going to go Are you viral. Still there? I think, Did um, I lose you? Oh, yep, you there. No, I'm here. Have you got me? Uh, yeah, I got you. Sorry about that. Cool. <laughs> I thought we'd lost right. the connection. Go ahead, please. I was just having a good laugh and just saying, like, I knew as soon as I saw this, the John Oliver interview, the Dick Picks interview, as it's known, <laughs> that it was going to go viral. Like, it was really clear to me straight away. I think there was 300,000 views when I saw it and, and wrote about it. By the time I finished my article, there was a million views on it, and there's now seven and a half million views on it. <laughs> um, 
he did the most brilliant thing right, which is that he found the one point that would engage every single human being on the planet. Because like every <laughs> single human being either has a dick or they know someone who has a dick. <laughs> so everybody feels personally invested in this topic. And while on one hand, you know, people bemoan it and say, "Oh my God, it's a really sad thing that we have to stoop to to genital humour in order to be able to engage everybody," but then at the same time you saw you know in the interviews of the member the general public um that this really did hit home for them right because this is something they can relate to like yes they send intimate photos to their partners and no they don't want the nsa looking at and or circulating and or storing forever their intimate photos And unfortunately, that's exactly what has been happening. They have been vacuuming up everybody's intimate photos, and they do have access to them. And as Snowden said, they do have a chuckle, you know, about them and and or send them to Bob down the row. Um, And that horrifies people. It completely horrifies people because it it personalizes it. It's no longer just about, like, the terrorists overseas somewhere. It's about my penis or my husband's penis, and, oh, my (laughs) God, the NSA have a picture of it. It, it really also dovetails with what we were just saying. It is not realistic to expect that people are perfect people. That these sources may have things that they don't want to go out there, but in the interest of transparency, it's going to have to be addressed. It will be addressed. Um, and, and what was really, I thought, the best part of, of Snowden's reaction to it was how he reacted to it. <laughs> I, I really got a kick out of how he was dealing with the, the, <laughs> with the interview, which was, of course, a sham. That wasn't a for real, but it was so close to what mainstream media and disinformation is trying to do. Uh, can you go into that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I, I think he handled it really well. It was nice to see him in a deep blush at a certain point there, but um, he really did handle it so well. You know, he did well with the off-the-cuff comments and statements. I mean, obviously, he's not a comedian like John Oliver is, but he handled <laughs> the, the comedic aspect really, really well. Um, his answers were brilliant. Um, the leading questions at the end where they actually went into each individual program and how that could capture dick pic. That was just absolutely classic, and it took what was highly technical information and very specialized knowledge and made it accessible to to the viewing audience and and I think that needed to happen. It was overdue for that to happen and full props to Snowden as well for actually participating and you know appreciating what had occurred, not being mortified by it, not being embarrassed by it, but actually embracing it, and also to Greenwald and others who who um, subsequently promoted the video and the viral nature of it. I think that was really genius on their part um, to, to embrace this. It was clearly a huge win for them. There's several points in here. One of them is this stuff is scary. I mean, this is warfare. It, our government has declared war against us. Uh, and, and it's very difficult to be afraid of something that you can laugh at. So I think the humor side of this is extremely important here. Uh, you helped us out. Uh, you did an analysis of Doug Ballantyne and and uh, the counterinsurgency interview that we did. Um, and and basically, it's the humor that helps you get through this because we we were talking. When somebody looks at the tweets from that time period, we're talking about the crickets chirping because nobody wants to touch this. 
and I understand that, but we're not going to get out of here by ignoring it harder. Um, what what, what are your thoughts easier, on this? I think it's easier um, for people to deal with that type of information that have that have seen it in person on the ground because then it's making sense of things that didn't make sense to them when they were going through it so it's a there's a relief aspect to it like for me when I was reading through that counterinsurgency stuff I was like oh my god this is the story of everything that's happened to us for the last four years and all these pieces are dropping into place and it's making sense for me but for when a non-activist reads that you know they're just they're shocked and dismayed and they just can't believe surely this doesn't happen surely our government doesn't do this you know, maybe they do this in Afghanistan. Surely they don't do this in Ferguson or Auckland or New York City, you know. And, of course, they, they are and they do. Um, but they so do in Ferguson. Yeah, really. But I, I think that comedy, right, comedy is something that engages people and people feel good about it. So they don't feel scared and they don't feel doubtful. You know, they're not um, doubting whether something's actually occurred. They're actually laughing and happy and they want to show it to their friends and they want to show it to their family. So um, I think that was a really good object lesson. I think that maybe the, the counterintelligence information that's coming out is more palatable to activists than it is to the general public, but I think that the John Oliver interview taught us a lot about how we can get wider circulation of these issues to the general public in a way that is meaningful to them. It's absolutely vital that it gets out there, too. And, and I'm really not seeing, even out of journalists that, that are uh, like The Intercept, I don't see The Intercept really addressing this, and we've got to have their help. I mean, they are, we've got to have them, uh, and I don't see them being there <laughs> any day any now, day, guys. They're addressing it, but they're doing. They're addressing the nitty-gritty, right? They're addressing the precise tactics of JTRIG, which is the precise unit from GCHQ that is perpetrating a lot of, the, at least the online side of it. So they're dealing with documents that are detailing the specifics of what is being done. And so it's really at a micro level, um, really operational information around targeting activists personally. Um, so again, that's really key information for activists. Like I read that stuff and I'm like, oh my God, that happened to me and that happened to this other person in my media team and that happened to another activist I know. And I can relate personal situations to everything that I'm seeing in those documents, which is yet another reason I know that they're legit. Um, however, I think, for again, for non-activists, it's harder for them to connect with that. And I see what you're saying, which is that we need the bigger picture, right? People need to understand the bigger picture, that this is an actual strategy that is um, played out at a very high level and at an international level, because this is being done in New Zealand, it's being done in the UK, it's being done in America. God only knows where else it's being done. I'm sure it's been done in Canada. Obviously, all of the Five Eyes at a minimum, and probably dozens more, if, you know, maybe even 100 countries in the world are, are having the same tactics used on it. So I think that we need to... You're right that The Intercept isn't covering it at a big level, at a generic level, but then if they did, they would be criticised, you know, for, you know, how are you sourcing that, or they people would, would want them to prove the nitty-gritty in order to be able to present the bigger picture. So I think, again, it's a, that catch-22, right, where if they cover the big picture, people are going to say, you know, it's, it's conspiracy theory. But if they cover the nitty-gritty, then people are going to say, oh, it's too technical and we don't really understand it and whatnot. So 
I think it's about more than just the intercept. I think the responsibility lies with all of us to circulate information in the way that we can to people that we can. And the tendency to sit back and be like, oh, why hasn't Greenwald done this? Or why hasn't Snowden done that? Look at what they have done. I mean, how much do you expect from these guys, seriously? Like, it, they can be an expert in one thing or two things or three things or five things, but do you really... I, I see people saying, you know, why aren't they 9-11 um, truthers and why aren't they blah, 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 blah? And it's like, you can't actually list every problem the world has and expect Greenwood and Snowden to solve it. At, at the end of the day, people have to take responsibility for what they have a personal interest in and what they can contribute to, what issues they can contribute to. I um, guess my own I, personal side yeah. of this is if we don't get some support on these issues, we're going to disappear. Uh, it would be much more difficult for Greenwald to be disappeared or defenestrated in the final uh, spy game term. Uh, I, I don't want to be defenestrated, but if we don't get this word out just a little bit faster, I'm not going to be around to see the end of this mess. Uh, and I guess that's my own selfish reason for seeing Hello, could we pick up the pace a little bit, guys? Do you see a way to to try to accelerate this? I think um, safety comes in numbers, and I think the more connected that we are to each other, the higher our chance of survival increases, and therefore our ability to serve others and the cause increases. And I know, um, having seen the transition for myself from... New Zealand where I was very isolated. I had my media team, but my media team all faced exactly the same problems that I was facing um, on a very individual level. Um, we were all targeted. And we didn't have the wider infrastructure to support us of other activists having gone through the same thing and come out the other end. Um, and also New Zealand is really in a technology black hole. So we, we are 10, 15 years behind the rest of the world in technology, but we're being attacked with technology that is cutting edge. Um, coming to Berlin where there are established structures for activists and there are places of refuge and safe haven and organizations like really well established organizations that are well resourced and really have their proverbial together you know um, has just been amazing the difference is incredible because you can begin to work free of that level of harassment that you face when you're more isolated Um, so I think that Activists being isolated serves the government agenda because it allows them to be targeted and to be repressed. But the more that we coordinate and the more that we support each other, the harder it is for the governments to be able to get away with doing that kind of low-down, dirty deeds to us that they are able to when we're isolated. So that, for me, has been the big lesson, is that there is safety in numbers, and there are support structures out there, and we have to find them. We have to connect to each other, and we have to help each other, and we have to find them. From the As coin for the, the general state of the world, though, I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I look at, you know, the water problems. I look at shell drilling in the Arctic Ocean right this very day, and 
and climate change and everything else and I, I'm just absolutely overwhelmed by it even Fukushima and the state of the oceans and the list just goes on and on and on and on like we are destroying this planet so rapidly and there are so many issues that if there isn't systemic change we are all toast the planet is toast I have absolutely no doubt about that but I do believe what you say and what you've told us which is that eventually the system will fall cave in upon itself because it cannot sustain itself it never does it, it, that was what, what the history was showing and, and that is something to try to keep a handle on if they're losing they're going to lose they always lose uh, but it would be nice if they lose fast enough that I stay alive to get all the way through it. Uh, and, and the three pillars that we were dealing with was uh, that was our, the architect of that is uh, Kilcullen, and he's from Australia. Um, and he is quoted as saying, "I sent you that quote the other day, and we'll have it linked in." But he's quoted as saying, "Before they can even deploy all of these magical toys that they have, and billions and." maybe trillions of dollars worth of technology, uh, before they can use any of that against us, they have to have control of information. And the control of information is specifically we have to defend our ideology, what do we believe in. We have to defend sanctuary. We have to be able to do this and be able to be safe while we do it, or at least some, uh, like you were saying, safety in numbers. There have to be safe places for us. And the third thing is, uh, I've forgotten the third thing. Do you, <laughs> uh, ideology, sanctuary, and motivation. There we go. Uh, how do we motivate ourselves? Right? How do we continue to do this? And it's, it's probably a Freudian slip that I couldn't remember the word motivation because I want to quit. I've been doing this since the first week of Occupy. I've been scared to death since the first week of Occupy, and I'm tired of being scared to death. I'm too old for this. I need to be fishing in a rocking chair. Uh, but we have to well, it's defend about, these... It's a bit like what I was saying about Ellsberg, isn't it? I mean, he, he should definitely be in retirement fishing in a rocking chair somewhere, but he's trying to tell the world, you know, that nuclear weapons are insanity and, and to stop the fighting. Um, I don't know that this is a fight that we ever can give up and retire from. I look at my older friends who came through Springbok Tour in 81 in New Zealand, who won some of the biggest political battles in the history of New Zealand activism. They're still fighting today, you know, even <laughs> for all the struggles that they went through then. For the, they had the same type of targeting. It was different time, different level of technology, different resources set against them. But they, they still went through hell. They were still individually targeted and having their lives dismantled. But they won one of the biggest political battles, you know, of our time. Um, and they're still here beside us today fighting. They, I, I don't think you ever really can retire from caring about the planet. I don't think you ever retire from wanting life to continue for future generations. I, I do hear you, though. I mean, I've definitely had what they call activist burnout, which is periods where you just don't want to know anymore. You just need to think about yourself and regenerate a bit because it's just too much pressure and too much stress but at the end of the day we're guided by our conscience and my conscience always leads me back to the cause no matter what because when I see that injustice I cannot be silent and they count on our silence that's the whole point of what they do to us is that they want to shame us and silence us but when we are silent we become complicit 
you know, when we are when we are silent, we are protecting the perpetrators. So we have to speak out because speaking out clears our conscience. It's our only hope for the future, literally. And it reassigns the shame and the blame to where it belongs, which is not on us, but on those who, who do this and who profit from doing it. Again, from the, the title of this show and the theme for this show is Independence Forever, the American 1776 independence. And specifically, the ideology is what's contained in the Declaration of Independence. We'll have a link to it. Uh, and one of the people who was the architect of that was Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin's less than totally humorous, but they needed a good laugh too, I'm sure. Uh, either we all hang together or we most certainly will hang separately. And that's where we're at. That is the three things that they're trying to defeat us on. Um, we have to defend ideology, sanctuary, motivation. Uh, and we've got to make that, we have to defend there. They cannot win as long as we continue to defeat or at least defend. We don't even have to defend successfully. We just have to continue to defend. Um, and with that little stunt speech out of the way, we've got 20 minutes left in the show. Uh, we, we wanted to touch base on the third article that I really got a kick out of, uh, the Patriot Act. And you wanted to do the show Patriot, uh, Occupy Patriot, <laughs> but up here right now, the Ku Klux Klan has occupied the term patriot. Um, Tom Paine, another member of the, the original Independence Forever group, uh, he talked about sunshine patriots and summertime summertime soldiers and sunshine patriots. And I believe I just rewrote Tom Paine. My apologies. Um, but t talk to us about patriots. And, and again, it will be news to a lot of people to understand this isn't just an American thing. Uh, this is Five Eyes for sure. Uh, touch oh, no touch on Five Eyes. Most people don't understand. Even if we took out the NSA at this point in the United States, there's four more of them. Uh, that's what Five Eyes is. So it's going to have to be a worldwide movement to dismantle this. Um, we've got uh, 19 minutes left. Let's fix this in 19 minutes. Go. <laughs> Well, it's the breakdown of national sovereignty, really, um, is what is occurring, right? So the Five Eyes are operating as a single entity, as a single country, irrespective of the political constructs in each individual country. So we have the general public who wait every three or four years to have their one vote for a political party that is supposed to represent them and is supposed to call the shots, but lo and behold, the shots are actually being called by the Five Eyes, regardless of what political party gets into power. And we see now with the TPP agreement that's being rolled out worldwide almost, um, that is again the breakdown of national sovereignty. So now the laws will transcend borders and the laws are in the interests of corporations, they're not in the interests of the voters or of the citizenry. So we already have the military occupation of five countries, which is the Five Eyes. Now we have the corporate occupation of 
a bunch of countries. Um, and we had a massive movement in New Zealand called um, the TPPA No Way Movement, where we have had, it's really gone mainstream, we've had tens of thousands of people in coordinated actions throughout cities and towns all through New Zealand marching against the TPP. And alongside cities and towns all over the world that have been marching as well. And the Trade Minister, Tim Grosser in New Zealand, recently described us as politically irrelevant, our movement, and, and yet said that we get way too much press, that we have a pervasive level of press. Well, I can tell you that to get a pervasive level of press, you have to have a mammoth movement because the press play down the numbers and they play down the movements severely. So if you have pervasive coverage in the press, it means that you really have astronomical numbers of support behind you. But what he's really showing is the political disdain for the will of the people. So even where you have the entire citizenry mobilized and, and in constant action against something that is occurring, the politicians just don't care. They're just putting their middle finger up because they know that the corporate agenda and the military agenda will advance completely regardless of what the voters do or say about it. And so the entire political structure becomes this puppetry theatre, um, which again ties us back to counterinsurgency theory, right, or the strategy, because yes. that shows the political sphere as one column, and they actually state, you know, one column to hold up the, bu the building, um, and it actually states that if that political column falls, so if our movements got so big that we camped out at the Beehive in Wellington and took down the government, the security and the economic pillars, those structures are strong enough to hold up the building regardless of whether the political column stands, whether it remains. So basically the security forces, the police forces, the private investigators that are subcontracted, the military itself, and the economic structures, the banks, the finance, the money lenders that, um, that, you know, that keep industry turning every single day, those together can still hold up the system regardless of whether the political um, column falls, which tells us that all of this action for political change and all of the election cycles and the promise of democracy and everything else is completely irrelevant and the larger picture, and they know it is irrelevant, and they count on it being irrelevant. And so they're quite happy to shepherd activists into political campaigns. They're quite happy to see us focus on an election cycle or on who we're going to vote in this time or next time. They're totally cool with that. What they're not cool with is us circulating information about exactly this because that information is the foundation of the building. And once the, the well of information has um, been, you know, poisoned, from their perspective, poisoned against them, um, then they're in really big trouble, because that's the point at which everything can fall. That's the Tunisia moment. You know, that, that, that's the moment where everything can change. And so people really need to understand, I think, that we can't win by appealing to politicians. We can't win by appealing to, to legislators. Um, that said, they will try and prolong their tenure, <laughs> tenure in power um, <laughs> by appeasing us in small ways if they feel that those ways are not critically important to their continuation. And I think that um, the, the win against Section 215 of the Patriot Act, right, where that's now been discontinued, the United States seeking Circuit Federal Court of Appeals found that it was in fact an illegal program and that has since supposedly ceased. Um, though I did hear something about it being 
um, restarted in the interim period or something until it's finally shut down. Yes, that's but the way that, it But that was, a, if nothing else, that was a symbolic win for us. Yes. Um, and yes. that, as again, Jessalyn Raddick quoting her, she said this is the first time that um, the legislation has actually been revoked, even if it's just one piece or if it's just one system. Um, it's the first time that there has been any step backwards up until this point, you know, since 9-11. Up until this point, um, they've just been racing forward and forward and forward with more and more invasive anti-privacy legislation. So this was definitely a symbolic victory. I mean, this was definitely a vindication for Snowden. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But it's also a very small concession by a very powerful state. And we need to push for a whole lot more than that if there's going to be any significant change. Well, once again, we know, according to the architect of the plan, that as long as people defend those three things, the ideology, the sanctuary, the motivation, they don't even have to successfully defend it. They just have to defend it, that they cannot win. They never win. In fact, it's designed, according to some really good historians, uh, it doesn't make any difference from their point of view if the, if the bankers are making money by getting one side against the other. Uh, they actually make more money by it losing and coming again for the next battle. We're back in Iraq. We never really left Iraq. Um, does New Zealand have people in Iraq too? Probably. Yeah. With New Zealand, it's always sold to us as they're just there for reconstruction or they're just there to help the people <laughs> or they're just, you know, whatever else. And never mind that it's actually our special forces that are getting sent in and, and whatnot. So, I mean... Um, it's, uh, the situation in New Zealand right now is that we have a government that is a, a mini-American government. I mean, in all regards, like our Prime Minister was a member of the Federal Reserve Bank of America. Not the Federal Reserve Bank of New Zealand, the Federal Reserve Bank of America. So, okay, now I've missed that one, and I've been following you for years now, and I had missed that little point. Um, yeah, John he Key, was working. I mean, he was a derivatives trader, for God's sakes. I mean, oh, wonderful! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you made I mean, my exactly. evening once again. Uh, well, exactly, you know. But I mean, going back yet again to the counterinsurgency strategy, attack. Look at who's attacking the information base. The most successfully at the moment is is WikiLeaks. I mean, like they are literally on fire recently. Like they have back to back disclosures. They they had the Saudi leaks come out, and then you know the um, stuff about France recently and NSA spying on President Holland and two of the other um, his predecessors and then um, in the last 24 hours too the leaks about Brazil um, WikiLeaks is circulating probably the only really true and accurate current history of the world that we've ever seen and I, I often think back to like the Encyclopedia Britannica sets that you know salesmen used to come around and sell to people in the 70s and 80s and, and um, I think like WikiLeaks is now that living encyclopedia WikiLeaks is the largest trove of 100% true information that exists in the world. And um, you've really, you've got to shout out Julian Assange for that. I, I certainly do. You know, it was his birthday recently. The dude has spent his entire 40s you know, fighting this epic, huge battle against political repression, like, both personally and on behalf of everyone. 
and I really think his work is under-recognized, to be honest with you, though I do see a lot more recognition now in the mainstream media, and I was really happy to see yesterday CNN covering the WikiLeaks releases, BBC covering the WikiLeaks releases. You know, fast forward eight or ten hours, and there's a disparaging spin put on it, but the fact that they're having to cover them at all tells you what a big deal this is and how far the information is penetrating. Well, it's definitely good enough that... I'd talked to you and I'd sent you links before, but you've got like a gazillion irons in the fire and I'll have to resend and it'll be a link with this story. Uh, but there was a piece of disinformation, once again, uh, put into WikiLeaks uh, to poison well theory again. Uh, it's, it's effective enough that they're actually taking information warfare steps against it. Um, that, that was with, uh, part of what would bear Brown was involved with Stratford. Um, a, a couple of journalists I know had to file retractions. A couple of people who would like to think they're journalists but aren't journalists never filed react, retractions, uh, which, again, a violation of transparency at this point. We've got to trust people. Give them enough information. They can make the correct decision. Um, any thoughts on that with uh, 14 minutes left in the show? Oh, I'm just not surprised at all that that's happened. Um, I remember Jeremy Hammond putting out a statement about the extent to which um, the FBI had been involved in masterminding the Stratford hack. And I think that they lost control of that operation at the point at which um, Jeremy leaked that information, or allegedly leaked that information to WikiLeaks. Um, so they could have done anything. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And Strat for itself is not the most um, trustworthy organization in the world, in my personal opinion, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Um, I think there's a, they a good database. They have very close familial ties to um, what I can only describe as disinformation merchants that operate in the right-wing political radio sphere in New Zealand. Um, and I don't trust them as far as I could kick them, to be honest. Um, so God only knows what was in there, and God only knows where it came from. But I can tell you that us information activists, we have people approach us with, with bullshit information. I mean, that's something that happens. It's deliberately done. They dress yes. it as if it's legitimate. They go to great lengths to present it as if it's legitimate, but there's always some nasty thing inside it, some nasty factor. And then once they've convinced you to use the information, then they, you know, out you in quotation marks for having used it. So it's, a, it's an entrapment, a form of entrapment. Um, and it's very much deliberate on, on their part, and it's part of the methodology of discrediting activists. So that's something we always have to constantly be on the lookout for. And I have no doubt they would have done the same thing to WikiLeaks. They've probably been trying to do it for years. In fact, it's probably quite remarkable that with the number of documents WikiLeaks has released, that there's been so few instances of that. Well, the old reporter rule used to be if you could get a story and you could confirm the story, then you ran the story. Um, and that's back to transparency again. If it turns out that you're wrong, hey, until we have perfect people to make perfect reporters, occasionally we're going to get it wrong. Um, when you do, you file a retraction and say, okay, I had this wrong, and here's why I had it wrong, because this snake in the bush over here handed me a big bow-tied wrapped turd, and I fell for it. Um, and then you you do everything you can to try to illuminate 
that snake so that the next time he comes along, uh, it's not quite so easy for him to just completely pass something off as true. Uh, got uh, <laughs> five, six minutes See, left. I feel like that takes us back to the, the catch-22. It's like half dozen to one-sixth to the other, right? Like, either you really carefully vet every single document and you, you give the government a chance to present any contrary evidence or um, you just fact-check the hell out of it before you release it, and then you're releasing documents in this tiny slow drip feed and everyone's complaining about how many documents haven't yes. been analysed yet and that they're not released to the public, or you go the other way and you just flat out release the whole hog and and hope like hell that it is in a poison well, <laughs> you know. So I, again, I think they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Well, that's what retractions are for, and real reporters file <laughs> retractions. Um, you'll notice I keep using the term reporter. I am really down on the term journalist. I used to be paid to be a journalist. I'm not paid anymore. I'm paying to do this. Um, I'm just reporting. So I, I think part of what we're looking for here is to try to explain uh, how do we deal with this as, as what you said, an information activist. I still call it a reporter. Um, it's transparency. I love the term citizen journalist. I know other people don't agree, but I love the term citizen journalist because for me it's like where I came from and who I do it for is the citizens. Like, I was not a journalist. I did not go to journalism school. I did not get told you must do A, B, C, D, E or you won't have a paycheck. I did not go and work for a mainstream organization. I do not do this because somebody pays me. Like, I was a citizen experiencing things that the media were not reporting on and my my, my responsibility is to other citizens. I don't, I'm not responsible to a mainstream media organization. There's no editor or publisher on this entire planet that can put, stake a claim on me or that can tell me what I need to cover next or can uh, substantially change my stories. I have my own pub publishing platforms, a whole variety of them, in fact, and some other really amazing publishers, independent publishers, also publish and promote my work. And I'm lucky enough to have built a following over the last few years. But to me, the citizen word is much more important than the journalist word because everything I saw of journalists was just absolutely shocking. I mean, absolutely <laughs> shocking. I remember having an argument with a journalist where I, I said to her, you know, they, they wouldn't take a quote from us because they wanted to take them from the councilman and they knew if they took a quote from us that the councilman wouldn't give them a quote. And I said, you know <laughs> that they're going to lie to you, so why would you want a quote from them? You know that whatever quote they give you will be rubbish. And they said, yes, but if we don't, then we will lose access to them. And it's like, well, why do you want access to somebody that you know is going to lie to you. Oh, because access is everything to them, you know? And so I would rather have access to truth tellers and I would rather have access to whistleblowers and I'd rather have access to activists than to have access to PR people or press secretary of this or, you know, whoever else, like government officials or whatever. It's just ridiculous. And the fact that they get pandered to actually enables their lies. Like, it really does. If the media just said, we're going with the truth, and unless you give it to us, we'll be going to where it is, that w it would reform pretty quickly. But instead, the media participates in the PR veneer, and they print, they print the PR lines. And I just think that's disgraceful and completely contrary to the public interest. I agree. Uh, we've got two minutes left. 
Um, I, I think we've touched on some some basic ways to work through this mess, uh, transparency, trust individuals enough that if they've got good information, they can make their own judgment. Um, leave us with some good news. What do you see, especially you're in Germany right now. Uh, what is the mood in Germany in two minutes? Um, I, I have a lot to talk to the German people about. I haven't had a chance yet, but I definitely will be getting there because what I see in Germany is a lot of how New Zealand used to be, and it feels like there are a lot of things here that we already lost in New Zealand. And so I have a lot of warnings for the German people about the critical need for them to preserve what they have here and to be aware in how many other places it has been lost. Um, there is not the pervasive public surveillance here that there is in the Five Eyes countries. Um, however, I do see surveillance networks on the transport systems and I, I think that's how it starts. It starts in the transport systems and then it spreads through the commercial zones and the industrial zones and then eventually ends up in the residential zones. In New Zealand, it is now legal for the New Zealand SIS, which is our equivalent of the FBI, to plant cameras, surveillance cameras, inside residential homes without a warrant for a 24-hour period and then to use the information gathered in support of obtaining a warrant. And to me, it's not an issue of Orwell is coming or an Orwellian world <laughs> is on its way. In New Zealand, it has already arrived. They can film you in your house without a warrant. And that is where countries like Germany could end up in the long term if they don't really respect and fight to preserve the privacy that they do have now as well as pushing back and expanding it. So I definitely have a lot of warnings for Germany. I think on a happy note... Please. I don't really have much to say on a happy note other than happy birthday, <laughs> Edward Snowden. I've been dying to say hari hurato tane toa because that's happy birthday in New Zealand Māori, which is our indigenous language. And I saw messages go to him from all around the world, but I didn't see anyone speak to him in Māori, so I thought I would get that out there. Well, I, I think that was a, a happy note too because I, to me, New Zealand used the electoral process and made further forward progress than any place else I can see. Um, the Kim.com and the Maori, and, and uh, excuse me, I can't remember what the, off the top of my head the party was. But it the was a... The movements of the people. Right, yes. Weather's party. Yes. That you, allied with Kim.com. You gave us hope. For anybody who was watching, you gave us hope. Uh, we fought hella hard. I mean, that's what it came down to. We really gave it absolutely everything we had. We broke through to the mainstream. We got through to yes. mum and pop New Zealanders. We even had mainstream programs, you know, having to cover our content five days a week. But at the end of the day, it didn't affect change. And, and so we have to change our tactics now. If we can't get change through the political system, we have to be active outside of it. It's the only option left to us. Well... On that note, I think we're, we need to remember that COIN is always destined to fail. That's what the research showed. You helped us with that research, with that analysis. Um, I'm looking forward to more shows like this. It would be good to get an international view for Occupy America's social network. And I thank you, Susie. It was really oh, great talking so to you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's just awesome. Uh, well, 
I, I end the show the same way each time from the old Occupy movement. We had a saying, thanks for standing, and, and that's, that's where I'm at right now. Thanks for standing, and join us again for our next show. Until then. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.